Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, this is David Armstrong. I'm going to be taking the month of January off to work on my upcoming book. But in the meantime, I'll be sharing some of my favorite episodes from the past that you may have missed or may enjoy hearing again. Thank you so much for listening to Broadway Nation, and I especially want to thank our patron club members, including our newest members, John Schroeder and Alan Brody, whose generous support helps to make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the creation of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Now, here's a specially selected Encore episode. See you in February. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Craft and Art of Broadway Choreography, Part 2. This is the second half of my recent conversation with author Liza Gennaro, whose fascinating new book is titled Making Broadway Dance. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up on that episode before listening to this one. Liza is currently the Dean of Musical Theater at the Manhattan School of Music, and prior to that, she had a very active and successful career as a dancer and choreographer. And she is directly related to the subject matter of her book because her father was the Tony Award-winning choreographer and star dancer Peter Gennaro. He's also one of the subjects of Liza's book and this episode. At the end of part one, we had made it to the late 1940s when Agnes DeMille was dominating the field of Broadway choreography. Between 1943 and 1945, DeMille had four hits in a row, Oklahoma, One Touch of Venus, Bloomer Girl, and Carousel, and three of them were choreographed in what became her signature Americana style. This string of unprecedented success made her the most powerful choreographer in the commercial theater and soon led to her becoming the first director-choreographer of the Golden Age. As Liza noted last time, Agnes DeMille's most significant contribution to the Broadway musical was in how she broke the mold of the traditional Broadway chorus girl by insisting on hiring actor-dancers who could fully embody the characters that they were playing. This new approach to Broadway dance and this new kind of Broadway dancer would be adopted by everyone who followed in DeMille's footsteps, especially Jerome Robbins, who years later would write, Agnes broke the conception of what the Broadway dancer could be in the Broadway musical, what they looked like, what was desired of them, and what their contribution to the show was. And as you will hear, Robbins took that idea and ran with it, just as DeMille's Americana style was starting to lose its luster. Here we go. 
when she gets into the mid to late 40s, it starts to feel a bit dated. And by then, Robbins has taken over. And Robbins brings urbanism and jazz and Bernstein, and audiences are just overwhelmed by him. And he's extremely prolific. He has so many shows so quickly. And he's working at New York City Ballet with Balanchine at the same time. And of course, mentoring with George Abbott, who he was assisting and choreographing for and co-directing with. And who were the other choreographers who came out of that Americana movement? Well, for theater, certainly Michael Kidd. I would say Michael Kidd was the other really major one. Anyone who's seen the movie of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, you'll see that. And then the other choreographers, you know, I think of are more the ballet choreographers who I mentioned already. In musical theater, once Robin starts doing his thing, the Americana style is not as interesting and is not as producible. I love that you take sections of the book to profile these various choreographers, some of which we know very well and some of which we don't know well. And of course, one of those had to be your dad, Peter Gennaro, which was a delight to to know more about him. I don't know that there's been a lot written about your dad other than this book. Of course, you should be the expert. But was that challenging in any way to write objectively about your father in this regard? It was. It was challenging. And I just finished writing another chapter for an Oxford University Press book that'll be coming out in a year on musicals and television. And I focused it on my father's dances on variety shows. So I really dug in there even more so because when I was working on Broadway dance and talking about it, it was fun for me. You know, I was enjoying doing it. And what I tried to do with all the choreographers, and it was very fun to do with my father, was to really unpack what their training had been and what their exposures to dance had been, and then to see how they all brought it to the commercial theater. So that was interesting. And also just my father's relationship with the Catherine Dunham School, and then why Robbins chose him to co-choreograph West Side Story with him, and what my father brought to West Side Story that Robbins didn't have in his bag of tricks, which I think was really what my father gained from the Dunham School, which was the dances of the African diaspora, the Latin dances, the mambo in the dance of the gym, and of course the America and the rest of the shark material. Immigrants go to America, many hellos in America, nobody knows in America, Puerto Rico in America. Just so people know, when we watch West Side Story today, the original, whether it's the movie or see a stage production where they're recreating it, almost everything the sharks do is your father's work with Robbins supervising. Yeah, exactly. Robbins didn't want to choreograph West Side Story, and Hal Prince told him if he didn't do it, he wouldn't produce it. So he got a co-choreographer. He asked my father to assist him first, and my father said no, because my father had begun choreographing at that point, and he said I would co-choreograph it. So that was the agreement that they made. But I was interested when New York Public Library for the Performing Arts did a Google exhibit on my father's participation in West Side Story, and they had had hundreds of pictures, the Martha Swope pictures from the rehearsals. And in looking at those, it was quite interesting because you could see where my father was far more involved than I ever realized. He did the mambo, which is the Jets and the Sharks. There are pictures of him working on the prologue. And, you know, I don't know if Robbins was just using him to work it out or if he was demonstrating, who knows. But it was interesting that he was very much a part of that entire experience. And as we know on musicals, it's a collaborative 
art form, you know, the costume designer may be the person who comes up with the great idea for the finale of the show. Ideas come from everywhere. So when I read scholarship that tries to parse out this person did this, that person did that, it's frustrating to me because it's a lack of understanding of how the process works which is that everyone is going for the same thing. And when it works at its best, you've got a strong leadership and a director, and then everybody's just following suit and figuring out how to tell that story that way. So I think that the participation of my father, though we always say it was the sharks, there's that embedding of just a person's being in a show. You can't really, not tangible in a sense. Absolutely. I'm sure he had a tremendous amount to do with the entire show because he's there and he He's brilliant. And Robbins is going to use everything he can to make the show better, including your father's brilliance in doing that. His expertise in Latin dance is really interesting because your father's Italian. He's not Latin. (laughs) (laughs) And yet he was taken into the Catherine Dunham Company as one of the company members. So clearly he just had an affinity for this that went beyond any immediate heritage. Well, he was a swing on the Dunham Company and then he danced with the experimental company. He was raised in New Orleans, Sicilian immigrants, and they lived across the street from a black Baptist church. And as a child, he would, you know, follow the jazz funerals. So he had a real feel for that kind of dancing. It made sense on his body. He really didn't train completely formally until after he was out of World War II, which is when he went to the Dunham School on the GI Bill. He also studied in New Orleans when he went back at one point. Actually, my parents got married. My mother was a ballet dancer, and she said, we've got to go to this class. And it was Lilia Holler, who I think had been with the Ballet Russe. I'm actually just currently doing some research on her. But she was a serious ballet person, and he studied with her as well. And so you can see in his dancing on the television shows that he's really fusing ballet with these Black dances coming out of the Black communities, jazz, but in a very different way than Balanchine was doing. So Balanchine's bringing the European aesthetic to it, whereas my father is in America learning these dances from childhood. So it's fascinating to me to see how that translates onto the body. Well, you and I both grew up watching your father dance on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, You probably got to be there in person at times, but I have vivid memories of that. He choreographed that show for quite a long period, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, probably about eight years, something like that. He was a weekly. And of course, Perry Como show and the Craft Musical. I mean, he did all of those variety shows. It's really interesting for any scholars to look at the periods of the variety shows. Let's move to the director choreographers, Mm -hmm. which is a big part of your book. So it's natural that a choreographer would want to direct the show as well as choreograph it. Mm -hmm. Relating to some of the things you said earlier, just in terms of being able to not have to follow the lead of the director, but to actually lead the entire show Mm -hmm. themselves. And also it was inevitable that I think producers would want them to do it because it was all about the flow of the show. It was about making the show. As we move into this golden age where we want to integrate all the elements. 
sense of the musical, the best person to do that was the director choreographer because they literally made the whole show of one piece. Yeah. And DeMille is the first of this era with Allegro. And it's not a success. Although what I found so interesting in doing the research was I had always heard, well, Allegro didn't work because DeMille was a mess and she couldn't direct. And that was the problem. And then you look at the reviews and you see, actually, she got very good reviews. And what she was doing was very innovative. And it was the book. (laughs) It was the book, as it usually is. When the book doesn't work, the choreographer gets blamed. They fire the choreographer. (laughs) (laughs) So she had a rough time on that one. And I don't think she ever really recovered. I mean, she did direct a few more times, but never had great success. Whereas Robbins starts directing, he does Peter Pan, which he does the book and he does the rewrite. And then he's working on Pajama Game as the co-director with Abbott. And then he's Bells Arene by himself. And then he just takes off. And because he had an outlet, a parallel career at the New York City Ballet, where he had an outlet to have his movement expression. And he was focused on that there. But on the shows, I think he was less concerned with, again, this idea of invented movement. He was interested in the storytelling in all aspects. So as a director choreographer, this was a perfect fit for him. It just worked for him. And he went from show to show. And I think he was probably very, very good about choosing the shows that he took on. And he was getting offered everything because his shows were successful. That's a big piece that, you know, people forget. You're only as good as your material. You've got to have good material. He got to choose. Yeah, he got to choose. And she was just getting, you know, whatever was coming along, she was taking. So then coming out of Robbins, you have a very young Bob Fosse, who has an incredible experience working with him on Pajama Game. As I write in the book, it's kind of startling when you see the amount of the choreography that was done by Robbins and pretty much the only thing done by Bob Fosse. And I don't mean only negatively, was Steam Heat, which was spectacular. And defined him. I mean, put him on. On the map, but the rest of it, he's acting basically as Robin's assistant or doing the first draft and then Robin's is fixing it. Exactly. And he's another sponge and he's learning and figuring it out and, you know, setting his ego aside and soaking it up so that when he moves on, he just really takes off. As Liza relates in her book, years later, Fosse's biographer, Martin Gottfried, told Robbins that Fosse had admitted to him that when he was hired to do the pajama game, that he didn't know much about musical staging. Robbins replied, well, he learned fast. He's very like Robbins. They're very invested in a kind of Stanislavskian approach or a method approach. And they're really using that with the dances. How do you approach a dance like whatever Lola wants? Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you. What is Gwen Verdon doing in that dance that's making it so complete in terms of telling us who she is and what's happening in the moment? And that has always been fascinating to me because when you see revivals, it's the rare revival where you see a performance that really pops off the stage. I'm always kind of looking and thinking, what's missing here? And I think that a lot of times what's missing is the director. What Gwen said was when she did Lola, she didn't do it sexy. 
She did it like the ugly little fat girl that she was that sold her soul to the devil. And now she's got this new body that she's playing with. Hello, Joe. It's me. He hit so far. Hold on. That's you. And that makes the number so much richer. When the choreographer has that kind of knowledge of acting and what is required to tell story and express ideas through the body relating to the libretto, I think is when you really get that explosion of powerful, powerful work. And of course, Bossy was able to do it over and over again, as was Bennett. And Gower Champion, who's kind of another thing to me, because he really uses dances that are part and parcel of the Broadway lexicon of movement. He's really not trying to do anything with dance. He's just genius at building numbers and at making the entire production work seamlessly. And making the whole show dance in a way. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Exactly. The steps could be any steps. He's going to weave them together into this sort of magical nonstop event. Yeah. I think that's a great way to say it is that the steps, they could be any steps. Whereas with Robbins, they can't be any steps. They have to be those steps. Same thing with DeMille, same thing with Fosse. It's not less good. I'm just trying to show it's different, that there are different ways to approach the form. And if it works, it works. And it's not easy to stop a show. And it's not easy to get big hands. And it's not easy to build a number. So anybody who can do that, I don't take that away from Gower Champion or those choreographers. That is a very special skill. But it's a little bit different is all I'm saying from what DeMille and Robbins to a degree were doing. You have a paragraph in your book where you talk about the challenge of stopping a show and how that's not to be underestimated. Yeah, because it's a lot to do with what's before the number and what's after the number, what's happening within the number, and then how the movement builds and the structure of the number. And when you see... Bennett was so good at it. You know, even like in Coco, and I reference a wonderful YouTube clip from Coco where they're just walking, but the way they're walking and the way they're building and the way he's using bodies on the stage in formation, which was also a Robbins thing, where he put those bodies is so specific and is telegraphing so much information. That's something that I think gets not really examined enough in terms of Broadway choreography. And he was genius at it. And Bennett could do the same thing. And Bennett could also do it with dance dance, the way he would repeat a phrase and then change it a little and change it a little and change it until you were just sitting on the edge of your seat. That's a very difficult thing to do. You also go into a great description of how Fosse defines himself with Big Spender. He has a great career prior to that, wins lots of Tony Awards, is the king of Broadway in many ways, but really, in your view, comes into his own with Big Spender. I do feel that because, you know, now in dance schools, they teach the Fosse style. The miniature walked in the joint. Could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. Good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. 
is what he really lands on with Big Spender and then continues doing over and over again. He touches on it in New Girl in Town with ballet and the bordello, which gets cut, and then they kind of sneak it back in. This famous dance that we've never seen, unfortunately. And if you see the pictures, and I do have a picture in the book, you see how much it's like Cabaret, what he did with Cabaret with the chairs. That was fascinating to me that he was doing that then and that Abbott was saying, no, 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 you can't do that. And then he was able, not too many years later, to find a way to make it work within the context. And of course, you have to look at the period that it's coming out of, which is now we're in the sexual revolution and the pill has been invented. It's a whole new world and audiences are much more able to accept the kind of objectification of the female body and the overtly sexual female body, which is what I think Fosse just latches onto. And it's sensational and it's titillating and audiences do love it. And he does it again in Pippin and he does it everywhere. He no longer has any concern for time and place. He's going to do his thing, that movement thing, which is similar to DeMille. They latched onto a movement style that worked for them and they just kept doing it. They can now impose that on whatever the story is, whether it's the world of Charlemagne in the Middle Ages or the world of Chicago in the 1920s. Exactly. Where he purposely, I think you said, didn't use any actual Charleston steps in the show. He was determined not to put a Charleston in it. Yeah. The wonderful dancer and choreographer, Tony Stevens, who assisted him on Chicago, said he said, I do not want to use one Charleston in this show, which is, I mean, if that's your project, how fantastic is that? It was very different from what people had done before. Robbins would never have done that. But the fact that Fosse was able to do it, and honestly, also, that it was the same thing over and over again, but it was always new yet. That's amazing that he was able to keep it within the context of the show and kind of keep doing it, but kind of keep making it new and different all the time. Hard to almost describe. In a way, isn't it almost like a lot of modern dance choreographers that use the same vocabulary over and over again and yet somehow create new and captivating dances? Yeah, it's a modernist approach. And I think Bossy really bridges the gap between the mill and then Bennett because he's still kind of got this modernist intent and at the same time he's got the method Stanislavski thing and then Bennett comes along and Bennett's really not particularly interested in any kind of defining movement creating new kinds of movement he's got a vocabulary that's coming out of the social dances of the period It's jazz. He's trained as a jazz dancer and a hoofer. He really then models something else that then happens. Don't go away. Liza and I will be right back with Michael Bennett, Susan Stroman, and more right after this quick break. (music) 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. That takes us into a new sort of era of choreographers. I think you talk about them as being the dancing school choreographers. Yeah, the people that didn't have the modern background. You know, they might have had some, but the thrust of their training was as jazz dancers and sometimes some ballet, like with the Cassie dance. That movement vocabulary, it's all a kind of 1970s jazz dance. It's almost kind of jazz dancing that you would do in a jazz dance class. The difference is the mirrors and the song and the dress she's wearing and the way he structures the dancing and when he turns the mirrors on her. It's everything that he builds around the movement that's telegraphing the story far more so than the movement. The movement is a marathon, and she's basically like Giselle, dancing herself to death. But really, the story is being told through all of the theatrical elements that are happening around her. And that's certainly very different than if DeMille had done that dance. It would have been far more focused, I think, on a choreographic expression on the body, less so than the bigger picture of the elements. I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that if DeMille had done Music in the Mirror, the movement would have been been more psychologically based as opposed to Bennett is doing that through the whole experience, but not so much through the dancing itself. Yeah. Donna McKechnie might disagree with me on that. Well, I think I know what you mean. If you talk to Donna McKechnie, she will take you beat by beat through that dance to what each of those movements is telegraphing. And I get that. 
but the vocabulary of the movement is common vocabulary. What I'm saying is that DeMille would have invented movement that told that on the body. It's subtle what I'm saying, but there is a distinction there. And the fact that he was drawing on these kind of jazz dance movements was new to that time, these kind of jazz dance class movements. And that he's using less of a psychology than like an inner monologue, I guess, which could be considered a psychology, but he's kind of doing an inner monologue with her through the dancing. Whereas DeMille is creating an entire dance with Lori Makes Up Her Mind in Oklahoma, in which she's exploring this one character's psychology and what's stopping this person from moving on and what she can't get through because she's got this attraction to this man that she despises. And how that all plays out in the course of the ballet and through the movement and through the postcard girls, it's a very different process of developing movement, I think, than what Bennett's doing. And I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying it's different. One of the analogies I found fascinating was the connection between the postcard girls and Big Spender, that Fosse was clearly influenced by DeMille in that regard. Yeah, I think he was very influenced. And DeMille, who created those girls through the lens of Laurie. So Laurie, who has no sexual experience, is trying to imagine in this dream what these sexualized women would be like. So DeMille has them in this kind of flaccid, droopy, broken doll kind of positions. And then Fosse takes that and kind of flips it on its ear because they're still broken dolls. But the reason they're broken doll is not because they're through the lens of someone who doesn't understand sex. They're broken dolls because they're women who are worn out by sex. So it's an interesting upending of the idea. In the section of her book about the rise of the director-choreographer, Liza quotes the critic Walter Kerr, who made the observation that, as the choreographer-director became more and more preoccupied with his secondary chores, we began to get a lot less dancing. I think there's truth to that. Why was that, do you think? Well, I blame Robbins because Robbins was so genius at integrating the dances and making them look like they just popped out of those people at that moment and like you could jump up on the stage and join them that I think it's very hard to do. And I think a lot of choreographers were not doing it well and producers started to lose interest in dance. I think there's part of that's going on, but... I'm not sure. Well, one thing I think you say in the book, or at least I got from it, is that as a director choreographer, when you're now making the whole show dance, just focusing on dance is less important to you than it is serving the entire show. Mm -hmm. So you end up making choices that tell the story, Mm -hmm. even if it means that we don't have these big, giant dance moments that take over the show. We now integrate everything through the show. People often say there's not a lot of dancing in Fiddler on the Roof. Well, there's tons of dance. The whole show dances. But I understand what they're saying. There's not a big ballet. Yeah, there's not a big ballet, but there is the the ballet where the old lady comes back, you know. Exactly. But people don't think of that as a dance, even though that is entirely a genius choreographic moment. As is, of course, the bottle dance. That whole wedding, it's all choreographed. But that's what I mean about Robbins. Not many people could do that. 
And I think that after a few tries and shows not being successful, I think people just started to kind of not consider dance. And it's also the period of postmodernism. So you're not going to be really drawing on those Judson choreographers. You know, Trisha Brown are not going to be particularly interested in working on a Broadway show. And they certainly don't give a crap about narrative. I think the whole thing just shifted. And that's when you do get Bennett, who's able to come in and push it forward. And I think the great tragedy is Bennett's death, because we have no idea what musical theater would be like today if Bennett had lived. And the AIDS crisis generally just took out so many of those choreographers who were trained in those systems. But I think it made a space for Bill T. Jones, and I think it made a space for Stephen Hoggett, and I think it made a space for a lot of women choreographers. And Graziella Danielle was certainly the torchbearer for many years. And she connects those two eras in a way. Then Susan Stroman and Kathleen Marshall get their opportunities. Now, they weren't really around prior to that, but they're in the right place at the right time to seize those opportunities. And those two women have dominated Broadway for the last 30 years to a great extent. They've done 30 shows in 30 years between them. Yeah, it's amazing. And both of them very successful and given a lot of power because, you know, as Graziella Danielle, I quote her in the book, says, but the bottom line is who's making the money? And, you know, they were able to do that. Yeah, if the show made money, then you get hired again. Take us now into this current era, this sort of new wave of non-dance choreographers becoming the choreographers of Broadway. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill T. Jones, I would say, is the dance choreographer. And he brings, well, the whole show is done out of time. So he's able to do his kind of postmodernist thing without really being narrative and with it being kind of emotion-based and working with the actors, which he did very, very well. And then you have Stephen Hoggett, who comes out of Frantic Assembly and a devised practice and physical theater and has learned about choreography from Frantic Assembly, hiring these really edgy, avant-garde choreographers in England. He's an English major, and he develops these systems of improvisation, which he works with the actors and they create he gives them tasks and they come up with movement phrases and then he kind of curates it and pulls it all together and creates the number that way. So a lot of times his choreography feels kind of like an essence of the idea that he's finding ways to move the body and everyone may be doing different things and it enhances and layers the meaning in a very interesting way. Whereas DeMille, Robbins, those people, it was legible dance. This is not that kind of legibility, nor is it trying to be that kind of legibility. So it's kind of opened up a whole new door to how to approach movement in musicals. And it gives an opportunity for everybody to dance. So you don't necessarily need a dancing ensemble because the kind of movement he's doing is very accessible to lots of people with different levels of dance ability. And it's actually made from those people. The performers themselves are helping to create that movement or at least contributing to it. Exactly. And the thing I talk 
talk about in the book is the kind of lack of the button, you know, the button of a number. What is the button? Jerry Gutierrez always said it was the event of the number. And they're very hard to find and they're very hard to do. And people are not that interested in them anymore. Numbers kind of just stop now. And it's fine. It's different. It's just a different way of approaching it. I enjoy it because I like to see when it gets shaken up people trying new things because the audience will go with whatever you're giving them until it doesn't work. And then they turn on you. But if you can, (laughs) if you can keep it going, audiences are very open, I think, to new ideas and they'll start to accept, oh, okay, that's a different thing. And they kind of process it. And then the next show and the next show and these things do change. Sometimes I feel the lack of button is an arrogant sort of idea of, well, I don't want the audience's approval for what I do. If it's not coming from that sort of pretentious attitude, it actually works really well. I don't think people understand how influential Stephen Hoggett has been, especially on Lauren Letero and Kelly Devine, two women who are really active on Broadway at this point, have been heavily influenced by that kind of thinking but yet come from a dance background. Yeah, Laura Latara came out of Juilliard. I think her work is very, very interesting. And Camille Brown, I think, is really fascinating right now. I just love to see everything she does. And I'm really interested to see how she develops and where she takes all this. So as the historian now looking forward, where is Broadway choreography going? How do we make Broadway dance into the future? Well, it's dancing a lot. And I think right now, what I like about it is there's lots of different things going on. You have Sergio Trujillo doing his work, which is very difficult, very dancey dance. He's great with a book. Jerry Mitchell is great with a book. You know, they know how to tell a story. They know how to do that thing. And they both come from the Michael Bennett, Jerome Robbins legacy, basically. You could trace that path very easily from DeMille to them. You really can. Absolutely. And then you have the Stephen Hoggett stuff and the Bill T. Jones stuff. And then you have these choreographers that are really coming from deep modern dance, like the person whose name is escaping me, who did the most recent Oklahoma revival. And that was very modernistic. So where will it go? You know, this is what's fun about it. Who knows? The Broadway theater, for all the people can critique it, I think that it can withstand a lot of manipulation and it can absorb really any style. You can do a show about anything and any kind of dance can find its way into the musical theater and be made palatable to a musical theater audience. That's one of the things I really love about it. And as much as I've studied I don't really feel like I can predict it. I think post-pandemic, there's going to be a real burst of creativity and how that all plays itself out on Broadway and the most commercial of commercial theater is going to be really fascinating. I'm excited about it. Always excited to see where it's going to go. Me too. Can't wait. Thank you, Liza Gennaro, for joining me today on Broadway Nation. It's been so great to talk about your new book, Making Broadway Dance. Well, thanks. This was so much fun. I so appreciate your having me on. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. 
If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. And this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.